Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Regan Canope. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. What I feel like was and is a continuing theme is sort of the gap between our good intentions in Oregon and our ability to follow through. We're wired to respond to immediate threats and we're not as good at thinking about the thing that's coming. I'm really proud of the way that the Treasury prepared. I can say we were, you know, we were preparing more for the potential of an earthquake than a pandemic. If we're interested in long-run economic growth, there's really three things that make that difference. Education, innovation, and infrastructure. All right, folks, this week, for the third time in podcast history, Oregon State Treasurer Tobias Reed. It was a great conversation with Tobias. I think last time we spoke, he was it was just before he announced he ran for governor. This time, we're obviously a couple weeks away from the general election. So we asked about his reflections on running for governor. We asked about a couple of issues that have been high profile and in the news at Treasury, including the work from home controversy and his New York Times op-ed, which I found very interesting talk a little bit about PERS, talk a little bit about crypto. We ask him what he's going to do after he leaves Treasury and talk about a couple different ideas that came up. And I thought it was a a very fun and interesting conversation. But Reagan, what are your thoughts? Well, first, Ben, I want to fact check you in real time, because in the episode, you say that he's the first three-peat guest. I was actually the first three-peat guest (laughs) on the podcast, and then I became the host. But I think that he's the first three-peat elected official that we've had. So maybe we can get our editor buddy to go in and fix that for you in post. Ben, can you just say can you just say very loudly, elected official, and it'll sound totally normal. I don't consider someone a guest if I just text them to come on a Zoom, which is what we did for you. Like we actually had to schedule with the treasurer. So different categories, but your point That's is well point. taken. Your point is well taken. I loved, I loved our interview with Treasurer Reed. He's really friendly. He is very approachable. I feel like he's kind of a political nerd like us and so he fits right in with our crew here i'm going to ask him to take over actually as the host after you're done um (laughs) and we're just gonna have a great time with it he would be a good podcast host something to look for for listeners is we asked him when the gubernatorial transition happens part of that will likely include a meeting between the state treasurer and the next governor of oregon so we asked him to give us a preview of what his advice will be for the next governor. So I thought that was interesting and worth listening to. Reagan, any closing thoughts before we jump into the interview? Yep, we've got this interview and then one more before the election. I want to encourage everybody to vote. You've got to get your ballot postmarked by Election Day, which is Tuesday, November 8th. Really quick little, because we're talking about political nerds here, you made an interesting choice this time, which surprised me, which is you returned your ballot relatively early. For most voters, you should encourage them, turn your ballot in as soon as you can. Get your ballot turned in. For people like Reagan and I, we often, I think I can show this without revealing anything personal. We wait usually to turn our ballots in because we still are on targeted lists where we'll get mail or other advertisements, texts potentially about candidates, which is always interesting and helps kind of inform you about what campaigns are doing and how they're thinking. But Reagan, you couldn't take the you couldn't take the stress. You just had to get it turned in as soon as possible. I think it was partly because it just so happened that my wife and I's schedules lined up where we're like, we should just vote tonight. Let's just knock it out. Normally I wait and and then I tell her in the last couple of days and then I let the ballot sit around a couple more <laughs> days and then I take it in like Monday. I don't think I've ever taken no, I've taken it in on Tuesday actually. I've checked like Tuesday That's at like 3 close. is the latest. I've Yeah, no. I know. It's a little scary to be honest. So I was just like, you know what? And I've never mailed in my ballot before either because previously, so 
prepaid ballots didn't happen until a couple sessions ago, and then they passed um, the postmark law this most recent session. So those are the two biggest changes to voting in Oregon that have happened. And so I didn't really want to test out the postmark by election day because you have no idea exactly when your ballot gets postmarked, and I didn't want to risk my vote not counting. But also, I was just kind of excited to get in there and see. We've got a lot of we got a competitive sheriff's race in Lynn County that's super interesting, and then all the stuff that everybody knows about congressionals and and governor and all that stuff. So it was just it's just fun. I'm a nerd and I love it. And so trying something uh, new was fun too. Moral of the story is: doesn't matter how you vote; it just matters that you do vote and that you don't break any laws around voting. So just to be really clear about that, you almost um, quoted the West Wing there, Ben. Good job. <laughs> Like my peak accomplishment as a podcast host was almost quoting the West Wing. All right. With that, before we get any further derailed, please enjoy our interview with Oregon State Treasurer Tobias Reed. All right. State Treasurer Tobias Reed, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Reagan. I think you are our first three-peat customer. So congratulations on such a high honor to be the first three-time guest of the pod. It is indeed an honor. I hope I'm uh, just uh, blazing some trails for others. <laughs> yes, that's right. So we wanted to start with, I think the last time you were on, it was just before you announced your run for governor. That obviously it has since passed. Kind of curious now that there's a few months of distance between the end of that primary. Although I guess we're also like two weeks away from election day. So <laughs> I'm sure that's making some of this rush back. But do you have any reflections on your run for governor? Was it a positive experience or... How are you thinking about it? Yeah, definitely a positive experience. I mean, I, I feel really fortunate to, you know, I've served in the legislature and now served as treasurer, but you know, there's nothing that matches running for governor. You know, the chance to to think about the bigger picture issues, the, the long run future of the state, and obviously to connect with people across the state. Those are memories I'm not going to forget. I, I learned a lot about the state, about myself, about what I think the future of the state is and, and ought to be. So I feel really lucky to have done that. So what were some of the highlights or experiences on the campaign trail? Like, what did you, it seemed like I didn't have an opponent. So I was like doing light campaigning, but mostly with Democrats. You were obviously across the state. It seemed like a pretty negative vibe from the electorate, some a sense of unhappiness. But what, what were you picking up from voters? I think that's right. What I feel like was and, and is a continuing theme is sort of the gap between our good intentions in Oregon and our ability to follow through. I think Oregonians have uh, have a lot of natural affinity for, for fellow Oregonians, want people to succeed. You know, there's, a, there's a tendency to, to want as much freedom as is possible, but a concern for neighbors and, and fellow Oregonians. And yet, as long as we are good on those promises, that intent, we haven't been as good lately on execution. And that, that was a lot of what I felt from voters. And, and I think that continues to be a theme in the race that we see speeding towards a conclusion right now. Actually, Reagan, before you go, I'm going to ask a follow-up. Because I've been thinking about this and I don't have a great answer. In fact, Reagan, maybe you can add something to this. But is there a structural reason for that? In or Is there a reason why like Oregon state government seems to have more misses or poor implementation or delays, or does every state have this and we're just kind of focused on our own existence so we don't see what's happening? Like, do you have any theories on what's actually going on there? Well, I think it's it's something that's human, biological even to a certain extent, because 
we're wired to respond to immediate threats. And we're not as good at thinking about the thing that, that's coming. You might remember the John Oliver piece some years ago about infrastructure. I, I just remember this image of, you know, they, they, they created sort of a, a, a fake movie thriller trailer and some guys, you know, looking at a dam and he says, this thing's going to blow in <laughs> 30 years. And it's it's that inability to think that far out because of the way the incentives exist in our elections, in our policy processes, and so on, that make it that much harder to anticipate and to get ahead of those things. So I think that's that's something each of us as individuals, you know, the three of us who happen to be talking right now, more than another randomly selected group of people, have some responsibilities here based on our, on our own roles to try to raise those questions in a way that will improve our capacity to deal with them. We've, I think that's an ongoing challenge, certainly in Oregon, and I think to, to some degree across the country and maybe across humanity, too. I actually kind of I really think you're right about that. And I find it's funny that you said that because yesterday I was talking to somebody who I won't share, but they work for a local district and they were talking about how it seems so difficult to get like real change there, get real reform. You know, they're dealing with levels upon levels of bureaucracy and some corruption and stuff like that. And I just kind of said, I said, it kind of feels like there's fewer and fewer people who want to make those tough decisions that will make people upset. And so even yeah. if it's not intentional, they're just managing to keep everyone happy today. And if they mm -hmm. can do that, then they've done their job. And we're kind of in this scenario where it feels like if that continues too long, we're going to have really big problems continue to pop up time after time and we'll just keep managing them into decline and that's really that's a really bad spot for Oregon to be in yeah yeah that's one of the things that I really like about the the treasurer's job too because you know not only do we have the opportunity we have the really explicit responsibility to think about the long run when we're investing dollars for current and future retirees and you know, 360,000 people their economic security depends on us thinking about what the economy is going to be like how do we how do we pursue returns and, and manage risk these things are you know it's it's a nice refuge in some respects where we can be really faithful to that notion of of long-term performance so I want to go ahead and ask you about a bit of a controversy that happened. I can't remember exactly when. It was a couple of months ago. Willamette Week reported on a couple of, uh, I think it was Treasury employees, but state employees. And there was kind of a new work from home policy that DAS created that basically allowed state employees. And these particular employees were both being paid over 100000 which is why it kind of generated more controversy. And they were living in states where they don't pay income tax, Texas and Florida. And they were being flown in on, it would cost the state and the taxpayers money to fly them back a couple times a year when they had to do stuff in office. And there's some objection to that. Full disclosure, I was working in Senator Knope's office. You know, he disagreed with that. We did some press releases on that. We have a bill in process that we kind of started working on to try to really curtail that and cut down on those, you know, those, that kind of thing that we felt really wasn't fair to a lot of people who work in state government and drive to work every day and don't get paid extra to drive to work, right? Can you tell me a little bit about how you manage that? Yeah. So we, I first have to say, you know, I'm really proud of the way that, that Treasury prepared. I can say we were, you know, we were preparing more for the potential of an earthquake than a pandemic, but it turns out there's, you know, there's a decent bit of overlap in terms of our ability to scatter quickly and, and continue to do our work. So 
we've not dropped the ball through the through the pandemic and that allowed us to demonstrate that it's possible for us to do our work flexibly and remotely and that i think there's there's value in us having that flexibility but i also feel really strongly that people need to come to work and there is value in being together too and the spontaneous conversation the efficiency all of that sort of performance and i think that's part of my job as treasurer to to try to strike that balance so we took a very deliberate process and, and evaluating each position to have the you know the minimum that a position would need to be in the office. That varies according to the specific positions. But I said really clearly, we're not going to have anyone that is 100% remote. And here are the expectations for people to come. And I just do not believe that it's appropriate for taxpayers, or in our case, particularly beneficiaries, to subsidize the choice of where someone chooses to live. It is their choice, but it's not our responsibilities as an employer or beneficiary's responsibility to subsidize that choice. And I still feel that way. So we're, we're working through that process. Uh, we continue to just try to strike that balance because we want to get the best talent on our team to deliver those results for beneficiaries and taxpayers. But there is an employer-employee relationship and the employer uh, sets the terms of, of employment in my view. I'm going to turn gears to another high-profile treasury-related issue. Um, this was actually this is great. So many people are talking about treasury issues. This happens so rarely. I love it. Ben and I are just the only ones, so we we're glad that you're here, but we don't want to make you think that everyone's thinking about all this stuff. Don't worry, I'm not getting a big hit. <laughs> we are your target audience here, although our small handful of listeners are also your target audience. So that's the good news. However, this is actually an appropriate place to make this. This, you wrote an op-ed that was certainly read by tens of thousands, probably more like hundreds of thousands of people, because it was in the New York Times, the newspaper of record for the United States of America. And Ben, I don't want to interrupt you too much there, Ben, but I could not read it because of the paywall. So I'm hoping this was great, but I tried to read it and could not. Well, I should have told me, I I have a gift link, you know, as the author, I have, this was part of the contract. I've never, I've never had this before. You have to actually sign a contract with the New York Times. Really? But part of it is that that I can continue to distribute it so long as I say, you know, as published in the New York Times. So uh, we'll we'll get it for you. Thank you so uh, much. The state treasurer will hand deliver a link to. (laughs) Ben, I'm going to, I'm going to trust that your framing of this is totally unbiased. So actually your best here. Here's how I'm going to frame it. I'm actually going to just read what I thought was one of the spicier excerpts and then ask Tobias you to kind of frame what you're talking about here. So here's a couple sentences. And this is treasury writing. For people in my position to actively avoid information about such profound risks is a breach of their duty as a fiduciary. For policymakers to mandate willful ignorance about an entire category of risk and block private companies from doing business with their states because they might not share the same ideology is un-American. What are you talking about? <laughs> so let's let's go back to, to where we started a little bit ago. One of the largest jobs of the treasury and you know we probably should have started the whole conversation here because you know despite the fact that you have a really well-informed and particular audience not everybody has a clear sense of what it is to be a state treasurer and what our job is but we're not setting the state budget we're not collecting taxes we're managing resources we're a hub for finance in the state you know we run financial empowerment programs college savings retirement plans we look after the state's credit rating and issue debt to finance infrastructure and other stuff and, and the largest piece probably the one that we're best known for is managing the portfolio the largest portion of that is the public employee retirement fund the pension and that represents the obligations or the funds that will fulfill the future obligations to retirees 
These are teachers. These are firefighters. These are public health nurses. These are people who have devoted their work to serving the public. And in exchange, the state has made a promise around a pension. So this is a place where, where we all have a stake because when we generate a dollar in investment returns, that's a dollar that doesn't have to come from elsewhere in the budget or ultimately from taxpayers. That's a practical impact. It's also a legal impact. Our obligation is to those beneficiaries. We have to act in their interest, no matter how strongly or unanimously we might have some other political feeling, our obligation is generate returns for beneficiaries. And this is a hard thing to do. You know, we have a large portfolio. The, the pension fund is about $100 billion. And as we already talked about, those obligations go out decades into the future. It's not only the retirees now, it's it's the teacher who just got hired last month and might not be retiring for 40 years and then live another 30 years after that. So we're thinking really long term here. And I don't think I probably have to tell you, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world right now in the economy. And that's just right now. So think about all the things that can change over time. Think about all the ways the economy, the ways our understanding of science, the ways that all these things can change. So that has to be our organizing drive as we look for returns, as we look to avoid risks. I am not here to say that XYZ is the only correct conclusion on any issue, but I am here to say that if you're a fiduciary, your job is to think about the choices you're making from the perspective of the beneficiaries. What are you doing that's going to help them or hurt them? And this is a discussion that has centered around the question of environmental, social, and governance risks in investment. It's a term that gets used in that acronym, ESG. And it's kind of used as shorthand by some people to, to get this whole category of things they either like or don't like. But what I was trying to say in this piece is it's not, it shouldn't be a political discussion. Your job as a fiduciary is to try to manage risk and generate return. And so you, it's a little bit like saying, I'm going to debate gravity, or I'm going to, I'm driving a car, I'm only going to look out the rear view mirror. It's totally possible that somebody who, you know, could, could look at these factors and say, I think something totally different than me. And I could say, I think you're wrong. But if that person has thought about it, I can't say they are ignoring it. And what's happening in some other states, there's legislation being passed that says you can't consider environmental, social, or governance risks in your investment decisions. That's the place where I say I think they are not living up to their duties as fiduciaries. And in some cases, Texas, the comptroller in Texas, Glenn Hagar, I mean, it's, I don't want to give him all of the blame. This was, this was legislation and, as well. They have blacklisted investment banks that they believe are not being sufficiently kind to oil and gas interests. And there's a study from some reputable academics who suggest that that has cost taxpayers in Texas half a billion dollars in increased borrowing costs just in one year because those banks, they've not been willing to work with those banks in, in issuing that debt. So there's practical in the short term, there's real risk in the long term as well. And it's not political, it's just the question of, are you serving your fiduciary obligations by, by looking out for, for beneficiaries' interests? Well, and I think one of the things that you that you did kind of say in that piece in the part that Ben read especially is is that not only the conservative objection to ESG but you were pushed months before that by some of the progressives focused on climate change and there's been legislation proposed but not passed that I know of to divest fully from fossil fuels right and that's kind of the flip side of the coin whereas 
you know, you're not invested heavily enough or you aren't even invested in it, whereas now you can't invest in it right on the other right. end. Right. I mean, this is this is a consistent position for me, I think, because if what you're asking is, you know, should we inject political considerations into investment questions? The answer is no. Having said that, I think from a pure investment point of view, the trajectory is really clear. Over time, our exposure to, to fossil fuel related investments has gone down and our exposure to clean tech, renewable type investments has gone up. And I don't see any reason that that's not going to continue. In fact, I think we need to do more of that. But that is because that's an investment decision. That is our judgment that fossil fuels, given physical reality, given geopolitical, given policy considerations, represent a greater risk to our ability to generate returns. And clean tech and renewable generate an opportunity. But that sequence really matters because we're approaching this from an investment point of view, saying, where do we find returns and where do we avoid risk? It happens that it lines up with more with one political side than, than another, but it's, that's not the reason we're doing it. We're doing it because we're doing our job as fiduciaries and seeking returns and managing risk. So we touched on this a little bit in our last conversation, I think, but my brain always goes here when we're having these conversations. Okay, if everything you said is true, why is Ukraine it is, different? By the way, why, not if. <laughs> why is Ukraine different? Why is why is the Russia Ukraine Ukraine conflict different? Is China different? Where do we? How do we figure out like what is sufficiently like? Maybe we wouldn't call it apolitical. Maybe we would call it something else. But can you walk us through your thinking? Yeah, there's two answers to that. With respect to China, I think that's a very legitimate question, and one we have to continue to to wrestle with. Our job, however, and this, this is when you paired those two together, it's, it's, it's a good pairing for the purpose of this question, because in the case of Ukraine, Congress put sanctions in place and passed a law. And that's a policy consideration that comes on top of our fiduciary role. So we have to we follow the law. There's a practical question around that, too, because even as those sanctions are in place, there's a prohibition on buying and selling Russian assets. So, and then there's the practical aspect of those markets were not liquid. So how, how do you comply with that? So there's all kinds of complexity around that. People with far more foreign policy expertise and experience than I will have things to say about China, but that is more of an open question to the different people can have different points of view on about where, where that risk lies. We have to think about the long run, but much like, and you know, we didn't talk about the land board yet, but there's a concept there about greatest permanent value, and you can't disadvantage the present or the future. That's an example of that too. If you were to say, no, my, my view of the risk is leads me to think we shouldn't be investing in something related to China. Um, you could have that position, but a beneficiary might say, but you're costing me money in the short term because there's an opportunity there that, that you're not taking advantage of. So it's all a balance. And if, and if you multiply that across all the geographies of the world, across all of the asset classes across all the, the, the themes and tactical implementations of these things, it gets really complicated. So we come back to the notion of saying our job is generating returns, maximizing risk-adjusted returns over time. That's helpful. I was going to go into PERS, but I think I'm not going to actually, now that I think about it. I don't have a great question. I just have Re random. Republicans thoughts, so. scared to engage well, in PERS. Well, <laughs> me, you, you mentioned PERS. So, so let's point out one really important thing here. There's a big distinction, you know, I, I get this question all the time in uptimes, people will say, well, you know, the S&P 500 made X, why haven't you made X? And the answer to that is really simple because we're not trying to be the S&P 500. We already talked no. about this already. We're talking about long run 
returns here. So we're trying to construct a portfolio that can withstand all kinds of changes, all conditions. And typically what that means is that we're, we're shaving off some of the peaks on the upper and using them to fill in the valleys. That's, yeah. that's really important for us in a time like this. We're, we're not likely to be the top of the top, but we're also very unlikely to be the bottom of the bottom. And in times like this, that's good for us because we're trying to, we're trying to go from you know, the profile of the Alps to, to the rolling hills. That's better and the difference between you know, returns over time really add up that way. Well, I, I just pulled up my uh, Robinhood account. This is not investment advice, but 65% <laughs> of my very small portfolio was invested in Dutch Bros because I just I just wanted to own. I own six shares of Dutch Bros. I'm not I'm not some sort of Warren Buffett here. Um, Our two kids each bought five dollars worth of, of <laughs> Dutch Bros, so they're you're ahead of them. Yeah, that's great. And and my portfolio year to date is down 45. percent So that's Ooh. not really what you want for PERS because your unfunded actual liability goes up significantly. It's called UAL, and right. when that happens, the the amount that's paid in directly you know, certainly by the state, but you've got local school districts here. You've got all kinds of small government cities, counties, and that costs you general fund dollars typically, which means you have less to spend on services and all that kind of other stuff. So it's really important to explain that that to other legislators, we would be way better off. (laughs) I I will definitely, I'm starting in the Capitol this next session. I will sit down and talk to every single legislator about it. Ben, I'll explain it to you again whenever you're ready. I'm unfortunately busy at that time, but maybe we can look further down. So actually, I do have a, a broad question on PERS. There's, you know, there's a, a pretty significant PERS reform passed. I believe that was 2019 session. How would you describe the current status of PERS? Are we, do you anticipate people coming with reforms in the future? Do you think we're pretty stable at this point? Like, how would, how do you think about it? So Oregon has a bit of a different system than some of our peers, and I think it's actually a really healthy thing. Treasury deals with the assets, not the liability. So our investment council is focused solely on investment decisions. The running of the actual system, the crediting, the interaction with members is the PERS agency and the PERS board. So we certainly talk to each other, but they make decisions separately from ours. So what I can tell you is that the the end of last year, we were, I think, 86% funded. That is pretty good. It's not the crisis that some people have historically made it out to be. And that's something that we've really worked hard while I've been treasurer to do is to to separate the politics from from the numbers and the the actual impact of, of decisions. The tumult of, of the markets, you know, are, you know, they're, they're real, but inflation in a, in a strange way is actually good for the portfolio. Rising interest rates uh, help us because the return you get in, in fixed income goes up. Our, all of those kinds of things will actually likely improve the funded status of the pension. And that's the kind of decision that we focus on about how do we strike the right balance in terms of risk. Where do we push? Where do we put those those assets to work so that we're, we're balancing that? And I would say, you know, the, the policy questions are what they are. I certainly have my opinions, but as the chief investment officer for the state, people should feel really confident about the quality of the team at Treasury, the record relative to our peers in particular, but, you know, in raw terms as well, the PERS, the PERF, the pension, the Public Employees Retirement Fund is in really solid shape. 
that's great to hear. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I think you said earlier, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you're kind of the hub of investment for the state. And so what kind of a role does crypto and blockchain technology, I don't want to talk about you guys buying shares of cryptocurrency companies, but I just want to talk about the technologies and that kind of space and how it's going to, how you think it might influence treasury over the next decade or so, maybe. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, and the short answer is, I don't know, because it's such a, a new technology. And I, I, I want to be careful to, to separate blockchain from cryptocurrency here. They're different things, as, as you know. I think that the underlying technology is is pretty interesting and might have more application to other aspects of, of government operations in terms of identification management and service delivery and that sort of stuff. Crypto, I think, is is a lot more uncertain. We are not, this is a place to talk about the style of our investment activities, which is to say we're not, with very few exceptions, we are not active investors. We're not picking stocks. We are, are typically in the public equities, we're investing in indexes and private equity and private markets, we're picking managers. So we're not typically saying, you know, we like the Bowman company and we don't like the Knope company. We're picking a, a manager or, or maybe we're, we like the Bowman Knope management firm and their ideas and, and you go put, put our money to work. So we don't, we don't have any exposure. We're not picking particular currencies that we like. There's no doubt that we have some exposure because we are what's known as universal owners. So whenever there's a public uh, company, we have some exposure to it because we're an index. And, and to pick another example, you know, th there are companies, uh, one that's in the news lately, that uh, Tesla, that, that holds some of their own currency in cryptocurrency, so or some of their own funds. So we have some indirect exposure in, in that respect. But I don't see for the foreseeable future that we're likely to be very active in that. But that's, you know, that's my role as one member of the investment council, a voting member, that's where the broad policies are set. And then we have a really talented team of investment professionals who are, you know, I think one of their best qualities is an open mind to being persuadable based on, on evidence and data. And we'll, of course, be watching and paying attention to that as times, as times proceed. So shifting to the future here a little bit, very shortly, this election cycle will be over. The TV ads will stop. We will stop getting things in the mail. And Thank goodness. <laughs> and we'll, we'll transition back to a focus on governance, I hope. I imagine part of a gubernatorial transition would be the state treasurer sitting down with the next governor, as I anticipate the next governor will do with other statewide electeds and agency heads. What do you anticipate your message being to the next governor when she's elected and thinking about the transition? What's your advice? What should they be thinking about? What are your recommendations? I don't think you'll be surprised to hear me say that I think we should be focused a lot more on long run. I think, you know, I, when I was in the legislature and as treasurer, I think a lot about the economy because I think that is so inextricably tied to our other aspirations. A growing economy, especially if it's well distributed, makes a lot of other problems less challenging and gives us a lot more capacity to do other things. The truth is that unless we are a total outlier on something, there's not that much that an individual state can do to separate itself from what's happening in the rest of the country or the rest of the world. But at the same time, if we're interested in long-run economic growth, there's really three things that make that difference, education, innovation, and infrastructure. So I think that 
I think those ought to always be prominent. And I hope that the next governor will do that. I hope that the next governor will also look at me as a, as a partner and as the, the treasury team, as, as part of that extended team. Um, we want to be aligned and, and pursuing those things. One of the nice things about the three constitutional officers is, is we work together as, uh, as part of the land board. So there's a built-in opportunity to do that. And frankly, we have a really specific example of where we've done that lately in the Elliott State Forest, soon to be the Elliott State Research Forest, where we took what was a really thorny challenge that had been persisting for decades, and we're on a path now to really create, a, I think, something that, that people would be proud of by thinking about the long run and bringing new partners together, creating something that the timber community, the environmental community, higher education community, all pulling in the same direction. I think that could be a model for what might be to come. It's too early to start talking about legacy. You still have two years left in your term. So I got a couple questions. First, the state treasurer is term limited. Right. The attorney general is not term limited. The secretary of state is term limited. The labor commissioner is not term limited. Should the state treasurer have term limits? Do you think that policy makes sense? Well, I, you know, I'm I'm not such a fan. What when I was in the legislature, people would say about term limits and and my flip answer would say we have them uh, in, in two, two forms. They're called elections and, uh, and secondly, low salaries uh, <laughs> function, function for that uh, purpose. I think I'm not generally a fan of term limits. I think I could be okay with them in certain circumstances if they're really long, because as you both know, it takes a while to learn how to do a job effectively. Mm-hmm. It's important that the people who know how to do that have the, have the ability to continue doing that for a while. And when term limits do exist, if they're too short, the power, I mean, I think there are two effects that, that most people don't think about or don't want. Power flows to people who do get to stick around, which particularly in legislative bodies are, are staff and lobby. You know, think what you want of that, but those are not the people that, that voters get to select. And if you know that, that you're about to be term limited, uh, or at least I should say that for me, if I know I'm about to be term limited, my incentive to be collaborative and compromise might be affected. So I, don't, I think all of those things are maybe not in the direction that people want um, who want term limits. But, you know, if it's a long enough thing, I'm, I'm a little more open to that possibility. So I don't know. The three constitutional officers you know, we're contemplated at statehood. That's, that's why those term limits exist for those three and not the other two. It's relatively easy to understand why that might be the case with the labor commissioner. We probably didn't, you know, we're thinking about whether we would have a labor commissioner when the constitution was created. I'm a little surprised that the attorney general was not in the constitution and therefore doesn't have the term limit. I don't know. I, I, I'm wandering around here and answering your question because I don't, I don't, I don't know. It is what it is. If, you know, it's not something that I'm going to be, uh, spending any effort on trying to, to change in the constitution. You said something that was super interesting to me because I had not thought about term limits being an incentive to not be collaborative because I've always thought that once you're a second term or you're a lame duck, you actually have the ability to be more free because you're not as locked into your party because you don't have to run for reelection. But I hadn't, I think that you might be right in some cases, certainly We've seen cases of that. I won't call it any particular names on on the podcast, but I can think of circumstances where people have become less collaborative and more combative because yeah. they know either their term was up or they've been defeated in the last election. So that's, yeah, that's I don't mean to suggest that either either one is is universal. There's certainly no, personalities sure, and circumstances, but you're right. There are places where you could say, "Well, I'm not coming back, so why don't I just try to get what I want?" You didn't say that you were going to make any commitments today about what you're doing next. 
but will you commit to us on the pod to come on and announce what you're doing next here on the Oregon Bridge? I'm going to put you in the box and see if you can get out of it. Sure. I'm happy to talk about it when I have an idea what that will be. And you know, I, I know you will both uh, give me ideas on what that ought to be, too. Well, yeah. and how long could you establish residency in Tiger to primary uh, a certain <laughs> freshman state representative if he doesn't do his job right? Well, how dare you? Uh, I, I, I like I like our house. Uh, you know, there, there is a little bit of a rivalry. Those outside of Washington County may not know this between Beaverton and Tiger. Shoals Ferry mm-hmm. divide is pretty significant. Uh, so I, I don't see that in my future at any point. So we'll let see. the record sense. let the record show that my new district crosses the Shoals Ferry Divide and includes Southridge High School in Oof. House District 25. So I think that must have been visionary leadership from the redistricting committee to really bridge a critical well, divide. I understand <laughs> why you would want to represent that area, given given the history uh, of, of previous representatives of that area uh, and how that <laughs> you know, how well served they were. So well said. So while we're on the topic, and I think we might close after this, we did report in in our newsletter, there was some talk of Tobias Reed as a potential university president following the mold of Dave Fronmeyer, a former statewide elected official, unsuccessful run for governor, and then became like, I don't know if he's, the, he might be the longest tenured, definitely the longest tenured in modern history, and like wildly popular. Have you ever thought about higher administration? Is that something that interests you? Definitely. I worked at Willamette after I graduated. Grandfather was a, was a university president many decades ago. Yeah, I, I mean, we talked about this already, that I think education generally and higher education specifically is really central to, to economic growth. And it's anytime I could find a, play, a way to be helpful in higher education, count me as interested. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned for the, uh, for the podcast reveal whenever it happens. <laughs> Treasure Reed, thanks again for making time to join the pod again. Any closing thoughts for our listeners before we let them go? Make sure you vote. This is going to be a really important uh, important race. It's tight, but uh, I certainly hope that people are uh, going to cast their votes and uh, vote for uh, for Tina Kotek and, and Democrats up and up and down the ticket. That's my that's my partisan my one parting partisan comment <laughs> oh. uh, as we leave. But otherwise, uh, pr- pretty under control for for a Friday afternoon. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, thanks again, uh, Treasury. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you.